There's a key word running through this chapter of Acts. It's translated as confidence a couple of times in my New American Standard Bible. Once as boldness. It's found in verses 13, 29, and 31. And it becomes a key word in this story. The Greek word is parasia. And parasia means boldness and confidence, as it's translated here. But more specifically, parasia means bold, confident speech. It means bold, forthright truth-telling. Somebody who displays the virtue of parasia doesn't use flattery, doesn't try to manipulate his audience in order to get them to respond. He doesn't use rhetorical tricks. He doesn't bend the truth or adjust it to the audience. He doesn't hedge. One who's in the grip of parasia knows that the truth is on his side and he's confident that speaking the truth is what he's called to do. He takes moral responsibility for speaking the truth even to people who don't want to hear the truth, even to people that will react to the truth with hostility. Parasia is the virtue of prophets. It's the virtue of martyrs. It's bold, confident truth-telling, even in places and situations where the speaker is at risk of loss, even at risk of the loss of his life. Parasia does not characterize the 12 in the gospel stories. They spend most of the gospel stories timid and confused. Even Jesus hides things. He heals people and tells them to be silent. He speaks in riddles and parables that people don't understand. But when Jesus begins talking about his sufferings in Jerusalem, then he speaks with parasia, as his disciples say. Now you're speaking openly. Now we understand what you're saying because you're telling us straightforwardly what's going to happen to you. The disciples are still confused. They don't join Jesus in his faithful witness before Pilate or before the Sanhedrin or before Herod. But once the Spirit comes at Pentecost, then parasia is one of the main virtues that's on display among the apostles and the early church. I say openly, Peter says in his Pentecost sermon, that the patriarch David died and was buried and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. In the very first sermon, Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Peter says, I speak with parasia, I speak openly, I speak straightforwardly. And parasia is very nearly the last word of the book of Acts 2. It's in the first speech of Acts, and it's very nearly the last word, the last phrase of, uh, of Acts is Paul in, Paul in Rome speaking the, speaking the word of God with all openness unhindered. That's the same word. It frames the whole history, this word, frames the whole history of the early church. Paul doesn't hold back when he's speaking within the church either. They speak with parasia to the Jews. They speak to parasia to the Gentiles. But in the church, too, they speak with confident boldness. In our epistle lesson, we heard about Paul speaking with confidence and openness. Not like, not like Moses. Moses came down horned from Mount Sinai with the horns of glory coming out of his head. And the Jews of that time, the Israelites, couldn't accept it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't look at it. 
And so Moses veiled his face. He spoke through a veil. But Paul speaks to the church with unveiled face, with all confidence, openly. He doesn't hold anything back. Not only does the church speak openly to outsiders, it is a truth-telling community within, where everyone is called to speak the truth in love to everyone else. The early believers have parousia, confidence before the world and before one another because they have confidence, parousia before God. Let us draw near, the writer of Hebrews says, with parousia, with confidence to the throne of grace. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence, Hebrews says. We have confidence before God because our hearts don't condemn us, John says in his first letter. This is the parousia of the church, John says later, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We can speak openly to God. There are no veils between God and us either. Jesus tore the veil. We speak with unveiled face to God. We can enter with Christ beyond the veil into the heavenly most holy place and lay our petitions before him. And because we have that kind of open communication with God, we can have open communication with one another and with the world. Jesus sends his disciples out to speak openly to the world. Jesus admits, I'm whispering in your ear. But what I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops. Don't hold back. Don't keep secrets. Be a truth-telling people. And Jesus promises, as we heard in our gospel lesson, Jesus promises that he will be with us when we're in those situations where that kind of confident truth-telling, that kind of bold and courageous truth-telling is necessary. They'll bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, he says, but don't worry how or what you will speak in your defense or what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Luke 21, we've heard earlier today, it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, all the turmoil that's going to lead up to that. And the disciples are going to be persecuted. But Jesus says, don't make up your minds beforehand what you're going to say. Don't prepare a speech. You're going to be dragged in before the authorities. Don't have a prepared speech because I will give you utterance and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. From the early part of Jesus' ministry to the latter part of Jesus' ministry, from Jesus' ministry to the ministry of the Spirit-filled apostles, we have a movement from silence to proclamation, from secrecy to openness. By the finger of his Spirit, Jesus loosens the tongues of the apostles so they speak with boldness. And Acts 4 is the New Testament's main narrative about this virtue of parousia, about the openness of speech, that's displayed by the apostles and that infects and is contagious uh, to the rest of the church. Remember the background of the story that I preached on a few weeks ago. Acts 4 is the continuation of a story about Peter and John going into the temple and at the beautiful gate of the temple they meet a lame man, a man who's been lame from his mother's womb. We find out in chapter 4 he was 40 years old at that time. Peter speaks to him, raises him up, 
and then begins to talk to the people who gather. Uh, they're marveling at the wonder that's been performed. And in the course of that, Peter accuses the Jewish leaders of killing the prince of life and choosing a murderer instead. They've chosen death over life. And because of that, they're in danger of the doom that Jesus himself has spoken of during his lifetime. You can imagine that the leaders of the Jews are not happy to have that accusation circulating among the people. Common Jews in the first century were very suspicious of their leaders. Fortunately, we've outgrown that problem. We don't have that problem. They thought that the leaders of of Israel were self-interested. They're definitely the wealthy. They're the elites in every way. And the people didn't think they had the good of the nation or the good of the common people at heart. Something like Peter's accusation could catch fire, go viral, spread throughout Israel, and the leaders of Israel have to put, put a stop to it. And so they arrest Peter and John, put them in prison overnight, and then chapter 4 describes the hearing the next morning before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the leading senate of ancient Israel. It's, it, it governs religious matters in ancient Israel, first century Israel, but it also governs the community. Anything, any community issue comes before the Sanhedrin. It's the final court of appeal. It's like a Supreme Court as well as a Senate. A Senate and a Supreme Court rolled into one. It is constituted, it's made up of the elites of Israel. We already know that from knowing it's the Sanhedrin, but Luke highlights it by mentioning some of the august names. There's Annas, who's the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and lots of people of high priestly descent. These are people of name. These are people of high status within Israel, and they bring Peter and John, these lowly fishermen, these people that they consider uneducated and untrained, and they put them in the center and encircle them and begin the interrogation. By what power or name do you do this? And Peter responds in the Spirit. His speech is from being filled with the Spirit. And it's a little masterpiece of Spirit-filled speech-making. The Spirit makes Peter a little snarky at the beginning. If we're on trial for a benefit done to a sick man, he begins. Let me get this straight. You're now arresting people who heal lame people at the temple. You are putting people on trial because they've done a benefit to somebody. That's not normal procedure, is it? If you want to know about this, if that's what puts us on trial, then we'll tell you. And Peter announces that it's in the name of Jesus, the saving name of Jesus, that this man has been healed. But he goes further, as he always does, especially in the early chapters of Acts when he's in Jerusalem. He doesn't just mention Jesus as the name, but he accuses, again accuses, the Sanhedrin of killing Jesus. The name that makes this man well, the name that saved this 40-year-old man, the name that can bring Israel out of its wilderness wanderings into the promised land is Joshua, the new Joshua, Jesus. That's the name. That's the man you put to death. You crucified him. 
Peter is not just evangelizing. Peter is charging the Sanhedrin, the elites of Israel, the high court, the supreme court, the senate of Israel. He's accusing them of injustice and abuse of power and murder. And it's not just anybody they murdered. They murdered the chosen one. They murdered the anointed one. Peter quotes from Psalm 118. This name, this Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone, rejected in his crucifixion, chosen in his resurrection. That's the one in whose name you can be saved. This man stands before you as a sign of what could happen to Israel. He was 40 years outside the temple. He's been healed. He's gone into the temple leaping and praising God. You can do the same. Those 40 years of the man's lameness connect with the 40 years of Israel's wilderness wanting. If you want to go into the land, follow this Jesus. But they don't. Peter makes a little editorial adjustment to the psalm. The psalm just says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Peter sticks in the phrase, by you, the builders. He makes an application of the psalm. The psalm is speaking about what happened to Jesus. And the psalm is speaking about what's happening right in this instant to the apostles. If you read the whole psalm, you'll see what's going on. The psalmist talks about being surrounded several times. The nations surrounded me. Yes, the nations surrounded me. The nations surrounded me like bees. This is running through Peter and John's mind as they're standing in the midst of these Jewish leaders surrounding them. But they're considering them and thinking of them as Gentile nations. It's like David being surrounded by the Midianites or the Moabites or the Philistines. These Jewish leaders, as the, as the uh, disciples later pray, these Jewish leaders have become like the raging Gentiles of Psalm 2. They forfeited their right to be called the people of God. They're just like the Gentiles. But Psalm 18, 118 also gives the disciples, the apostles, confidence. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. But in the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. That's the psalm that Peter quotes here. It's not just about Jesus as the stone. It's about the situation that these disciples are in, surrounded by raging Jews who have become basically Gentiles. And they speak with confidence because they know in the name of the Lord, they will be the victors. And the name of the Lord that is the name of victory is the name of Jesus. They speak with parousia. And the Sanhedrin recognize that. The first use of this word is in verse 13. And it's the evaluation of the San, by the Sanhedrin of Peter and John. They observed the parousia, the confidence of Peter and John. These are men who are not scribes. That's probably what uneducated and untrained means. They haven't been to any of the schools that would qualify them to sit on the Sanhedrin. And yet here they are, not only boldly speaking before the Sanhedrin, but flipping the trial so that the trial that's supposed to be a trial of Peter and John has become a trial of the Sanhedrin. They put the Sanhedrin on trial. How dare they? Where'd they get this kind of confidence? And the Sanhedrin knows enough about these men to know where they got it. 
There's another man who's been speaking openly. There's another man who's spoken boldly before the Sanhedrin. There's another man who's stirred up the people, who also spoke with Parisian. and they've been hanging around with him for three years. Jesus' confidence is contagious. Even the Sanhedrin sees it. The, the apostles speak with confidence because they have been with Jesus. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, has now shared his Spirit. Jesus, with the open speech before, uh, before rulers and kings, has given words to his apostles so they too can speak with confidence. The Sanhedrin realizes that they have no case against these men. They recognize that they speak with boldness. There's the healed man standing right there with the apostles, and they say nothing. Verse 14. And they go into executive session. Put Peter and John outside. We're going to have to discuss this. It's, a, it's an amazing scene. It's a revealing scene. Verse 16. What are we to do with these men? For the fact that a known sign has taken place is evident to everyone who lives in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. All the evidence is on the side of Peter and John. It's a known sign. Everybody knew this 40-year-old man sitting by the beautiful gate of the temple. They know it's the same man now that's walking around. Peter and John say it happened through Jesus. Everybody in Jerusalem knows this happened. They can't deny it. They don't even try to deny it. The truth is staring the Sanhedrin in the face, and their response is damage control. We can't refute it, just like Jesus promised. He would give a spirit to his disciples that none of their opponents could refute. The Sanhedrin can't refute the apostles. They know that it's true that this man has been raised. What they want to do is keep the truth from spreading. In order that this may not spread any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak anymore in the name of this man. They have no evidence to convict Peter and John. What they want to do is arrest the spread of truth. They're not trying to arrest the spread of disinformation or fake news. They want to control the spread of the truth because they realize what's at stake for them. They realize if they admit the apostles are right, that the name of Jesus is a name of resurrection, that Jesus is raised and he spreads resurrection power to others. If that's true, then the apostles are right. They're murderers. They're guilty of using their authority within Israel to murder an innocent man. They can't let that happen. Peter speaks as a prophet. And he exposes the wickedness of the Sanhedrin. People in power don't like to be exposed. They don't like the shame of being exposed. And they want to keep the exposure from spreading. They want to avoid the exposure of confessing. Because that too brings shame. And so they try to arrest the spread of truth. They're more concerned about their power and maintaining their power 
than they are about the truth. The truth of Jesus, the truth of what happened to this lame man. Every tyrant does exactly what the Sanhedrin does. Big tyrants and little tyrants. The Stalins of the world and the petty tyrants who try to manipulate and control your office. They can't refute the truth. They can't respond. They have nothing to say. All they can say, as the Sanhedrin does, is shut up. (laughs) Don't talk anymore about this. We command you. They move to imperatives. We command you not to speak anymore. Later, they're going to back up their warning and their command with a beating. And then later, the violence is going to escalate and Stephen's going to be stoned to death. Peter and John are still in the grip of the Spirit. And they respond, we cannot not speak what we have seen and heard. Threaten all you want, but you be the judge. Should we listen to you and your threats, or should we obey God? We submit this case to you, Sanhedrin. Obey God or man. The Sanhedrin has nothing to say except to increase and intensify the threats. This is the way, this is what prophets provoke. Prophets who are in the grip of parasia, filled with the Spirit, speak the truth with boldness, even if it will cost them. Speak the truth with boldness, even though their audience has all the cards, has all the power. They expose the wickedness and the injustice and the abuse of power that's being uh, of, the, of, the, of the people they're rebuking. And then the effect is further exposure. Provoked by the parasia of the apostles, the Sanhedrin becomes even more tyrannical. More threats, more warnings, and then violence. Peter and John speak with parasia throughout because they are speaking in the spirit. And Jesus fulfills his promise. He gives them words to say, words that cannot be refuted by their opponents. But Peter and John aren't alone. This is a story of two assemblies. In the first assembly, you have speech police. They want to determine what can and cannot be said and don't want the apostles to keep talking. In the other assembly, the assembly of the spirit, the assembly of the church, there is open speech. Peter and John go back to the assembly of the church and they report on everything the chief priests and elders have said to them. And notice what the, what the disciples do. They lift up their voice to God. They quote from Psalm 2. The Sanhedrin has become like the Gentiles, gathered against the Christ. But look at the request. If we were in this situation, our prayer would be, God, give it, get us out of this. Rescue us. We might think, you know, moving out of Jerusalem might be a good idea at this point. The community of believers in, the, in Jerusalem says this, verse 29. Now, Lord, take note of their threats. Listen to them. They want God to respond. But they also say, grant that thy bondservants may speak the word with all confidence. Peter and John have spoken with Parasia because they were with Jesus. 
And now those truth tellers, Peter and John, have come back to the community and the rest of the church wants to be the same. And they ask God to give them the same gift. That word confidence in verse 29 is the same word. They don't ask to be rescued primarily. They ask for boldness to keep speaking the word of God. And this prayer is immediately answered. They're no sooner done with the prayer than the place is shaken. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit as Peter had been. And they all began to speak the word of God with parousia. Jesus makes a community of bold speech, speech in the Spirit. The apostles are an inspiration to the rest of the church to speak with boldness in the Spirit. Two assemblies, an assembly of speech police that tries to suppress the truth and prevent its spread, and a community of truth-telling. The church in the first century and the church in every century after is a free speech movement. The church is a free speech movement. Our tongues have been liberated and loosed by the Spirit so that we can speak the word of God with boldness to one another. Speak the truth in love, Paul says. That's a characterize the church. Not flattering each other, not avoiding each other's sins or failures, speaking the truth to one another in love. And the church is a truth-telling community to all of those outside. It's a free speech movement because the Spirit has loosened our tongues to proclaim the Word of God with boldness in every setting that we might find ourselves outside the church, in our families, at work, in public places. If we're not a free speech movement, we need to become one. If we're not a people who are speaking truth in love to one another, we should strive to be so. And if we're not ready to speak with parousia in public public places, we need to get ready. I imagine, I submit, that there are some of you sitting right here in this room right now who will someday find yourself in something very much like the position of the apostles. There's going to be some human resources committee, some review committee, who's going to wonder about your bigotry, about your hate speech, about your unwillingness to call the bearded guy at the next desk, she, about your lack of enthusiasm for Pride Month. You're going to stand before rulers, may not be political rulers, but there are some people here, maybe some of you already have faced that. That's not a flaw in the mission of the church. That's not a distraction from the mission of the church. Jesus says, these are opportunities for testimony. When you're dragged in before rulers and authorities and asked to give an account of the words that you speak, that's an opportunity for testimony. That's another mission field. Jesus sends some people to the other side of the world as missionaries. Some people he sends into the city council that's just down the road. That's a mission field. And in fact, in terms of Acts, that's the, that's the more important mission field. That's the more important mission field in the book of Acts. But many more scenes of the apostles standing before rulers and testifying faithfully than there are of them going to tribes who've never heard the gospel. 
Not disparaging mission work in its classic sense at all. But in Acts, it's those, those situations before the Sanhedrin, before governors and kings. And we're called to speak openly, faithfully, truthfully, with parousia. How do we prepare for that? Jesus says, don't, don't make up a speech ahead of time. Trust the Spirit to give you a word. But notice what the apostles have been doing. Apostles pray for confidence. They pray for boldness of speech, and God gives it. Maybe they sang the song, and were filled with boldness because they're singing together. They're keeping in step with the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, not offending the Spirit. And so when they need the Spirit to give them the words, the Spirit is with them to give them the words they need. And above all, they have parousia because they have been with Jesus. Jesus' confidence and courage is infectious, is contagious. Stay close to Jesus, the Savior who speaks with parousia, the faithful and true witness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you've called us to be your witnesses. We thank you that we can witness to you in places of home. We can th thank you that we can witness to you in peaceful locations and spaces. And we thank you, too, that you call some of us to go into places of hostility before kings and rulers, before governors, before supervisors and review committees. Father, we pray that you would give us the words to speak, that we would speak in the Spirit, speak with all confidence, fill us with your Spirit, loosen our tongues to speak of your living word, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.